you indicated that you're female, but your sample is coming back male. Can you please send another sample? I knew something was different about me my whole life. Genetics isn't always black and white, and the emotions and decisions surrounding genetic testing can be even more complex. Welcome to Patient Stories with Gray Genetics. I'm Eleanor Griffith, a certified genetic counselor and the founder of Gray Genetics, a telehealth genetic counseling and consulting service. It seems like there are constantly headlines in the news about genetics, but few news stories focus on the patient experience. At Gray Genetics, we are collecting patient stories, your stories. Every other Tuesday, we share an interview with a patient or a genetic counselor. I was originally diagnosed when I was 15 years old, but I was not informed of my diagnosis. I grew up with a tremendous amount of shame. It feels amazing to know like you're not the only one. I grew up my whole life thinking I'm the only one. There's no one else like me. Don Ingram Covino is a psychologist and the mother of two 13-year-old adopted twins. In 2011, she ordered 23andMe testing for herself and her two children, interested in learning more about their ancestry. Her results also indicated that her karyotype was 46XY, rather than the 46XX karyotype that is typical for females. This led to a diagnosis of androgen insensitivity syndrome, or AIS, which made sense of some of the unique experiences she'd had earlier in life and during puberty. So Dawn, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure. You have a form of AIS, androgen insensitivity syndrome, which I think most people have probably never heard of. What does it mean to have AIS? So AIS is um, considered a disorder of sexual development. Um, It's considered a DSD. And there are many other conditions that fall under that same umbrella. Um, I have complete androgen insensitivity syndrome. So my body completely does not respond to testosterone. Whereas maybe somebody with partial androgen insensitivity syndrome would have some response to testosterone. So when my body, when I was developing in utero, I was supposed to develop as a male. I have XY chromosomes. So, you know, my, my sex was to be male. Mm-hmm. Um, however, because I have this condition, my body did not respond to the testosterone. So in that case, when that happens, uh, your body, the default is to become female. So my body became a female body um, on the outside, but I don't have any reproductive organs. Okay. Yeah, that's a that's a very good explanation you just gave. Okay. <laughs> and when and when and how did you learn that you have AIS? Because you develop mostly like grew up as identifying as a female, right? Yes. Yes. So I always identified as a female. Um, and I was originally diagnosed when I was 15 years old, but I was not informed of my diagnosis um, mm. because I wasn't. Um, developing through puberty the way a typical female would. Um, My mom took me to um, some physicians and eventually I was diagnosed, but I was not shared the diagnosis. I actually stumbled upon the diagnosis accidentally um, as an adult when I was, I think, around 38 years old. Okay. And that was that from doing 23andMe testing? Yes. Yes. Okay. (laughs) So so I had, um, I adopted twins 
um, back in 2007. And I, um, I just, you know, my friend told me about 23andMe and I was curious to get some background information on my twins. And so I did, um, I sent in their samples and just by chance, I just said, you know what, let me do this on myself too, because let me see how accurate this is. And so I sent in my own sample and um, what happened was I got an email back saying, um, you indicated that you're female, but your sample is coming back male. Can you please send another sample? So I sent another sample in and then I got a phone call. Um, from a geneticist out in California. And um, she asked me some questions over the phone. And she said, I think this is what you have, androgen insensitivity syndrome. Mm -hmm. What what was your reaction when she told you that? Um, Relief. Hmm. Yeah. um, Like, it was like, I wasn't surprised. You would think I would feel some sort of like, big surprise. And, and, and it was just like, Oh my God, really? That's what it is. That's what it's called. I knew something was different about me my whole Mm -hmm. life. Um, I knew I couldn't have children. I knew I didn't have a uterus. Um, but I didn't know that there was a name for this. And so I was really relieved to finally hear that there was a name for it. Yeah. Do you know if you, over the phone, do you know, did you talk with a, like a medical geneticist or if you were speaking with a genetic counselor? I know 23andMe does have Mm. a few genetic counselors on staff. I'm not actually sure. Okay. That's, I mean, it's not really important. Just like genetic counselor trivia. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Um, How did, so it sounds like whoever you spoke to explained it to you in a, in a way that, that really made sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, um, and how much had you known, like at 15 when you were diagnosed, but you weren't told, like how much did your parents tell you at that time or how much were you aware of without them telling you? What they told me was that, um, and this is what the physicians at the time told, um, parents to tell their, their children that were diagnosed, um, Mm -hmm. that I did not have a uterus. I was born without a uterus and that my ovaries were precancerous, that I had precancerous cells on my ovaries, and I had to have surgery to remove them. So when I was 15, I underwent surgery to remove them. But in reality, I had undescended testicles inside um, that, uh, that were removed. Okay. And I think there's, there's been the thought that those have a very small risk for malignancy. So that's been pretty common to have them removed. But I Mm -hmm. I think that is something that's kind of controversial. Is that, is that something you're aware of? Like how people look at that decision today? Yes. I know that it's very controversial today. Um, I do know, you know, there are advocacy groups out there um, that are advocating to delay those kinds of surgeries until um, the individual is able to identify, you know, as one gender or another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think that, so it's, it seems like having that diagnosis of AIS has actually, was actually helpful to you, right? Because it things was. kind of made sense. Mm-hmm. Um, did it make you think about yourself, your future, your, your past, any, any differently, just to look at things differently? Um, 
yeah, I mean, it helped me to accept myself to, mm-hmm. um, you know, it really helped me find some self-acceptance. Um, whereas I was always ashamed. I was always like ashamed of, of my body and who I was. And, um, it was something I struggled with my whole life. Um, I, you know, I struggled with anxiety, with depression. Um, so like it, it really, really helped me and led me to, to some self-acceptance. Yeah. And for someone who's listening and, you know, does still doesn't have much of an idea of what it's like to live with AIS, like how is puberty different for you? What sort of Mm. things were coming up for you that were different from like other girls your age, for instance? Right. So one of the biggest things um, was that um, with AIS and your body does not responding to the testosterone, there is no body hair development. So that was something that um, I personally struggled with um, because I felt so different from, you know, changing in, in the gym in front of my friends. Like it was, you know, embarrassing to me. I would, you know, go into a stall or hide because, um, you know, just feeling different. Mm-hmm. And I mean, now people pay like hundreds of dollars to try to get as much of that as possible, right? But, it, no. but it's still like you're you're expecting it, and then you're expecting to be part of those conversations about how you want to get rid of it, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I just remember like waiting, like when am I going to get my period? All my friends are getting my period. I want my period, and it never came. I never got one. Yeah. I initially read an article that you were mentioned in, and in that article, kind of telling your story about learning this through 23andMe, and in that article, there's a part talking about you sharing this information with your husband, and you were a little bit nervous about sharing this with him. Can you you share how that that exchange went? Yes, yes. Um, We were out at dinner, just the two of us. And I said, I have to tell you something. And his face just dropped. And, um, you know, I told him. Um, you know, from what I knew at that point. And he, um, he was like, Oh, thank goodness. He's like, I thought you were going to tell me you had cancer. He he was relieved. He he was so relieved. Um, And immediately, I have to say, he started doing research, trying to find out as much as he could about it. And like, if there were any specialists or doctors that I should be going to, he wanted to make sure that um, I was, you know, cared for. Yeah. Sounds like you have a good husband. Yes. (laughs) Um, And what about your your twins? So your twins are 13. Is this something that you've talked about with them? Um, Not in depth. Not in depth. Um, You know, I've been waiting for it to come up in a more natural way. Um, Right now in school, they are learning about genetics um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, finding out, you know, how you get your eye color and your hair color. Um, you know, they're learning about XX and XY and what that means. So we've kind of like touched upon it. You know, um, I did tell them that, that I have an XY, but I'm a female. So, so that's really just kind of like the basic information that they know right now. Right. Yeah. That sounds very, very age appropriate. I'm sure they'll have some more questions for you as they get older. I think so. Beyond puberty, um, was it in puberty, like around 15, that you learned that you did not have a uterus and wouldn't be able to have children naturally? Yes. Mm-hmm. How did you feel about that 
at 15? And then how did you feel about that as you got older? Like, yeah. I don't know how many 15 year olds are like, you know, thinking about planning a family, even though that must be like strange to hear, like maybe the, you know, the missing the secondary sex characteristics of, of, of like body hair could be more important at that time. Yes, that was. Um, but I think just knowing that, that, that you can't have something that's something you can't experience something makes it, you know, even though a normal 15 year old wouldn't be thinking like, Oh, I can't wait to have kids um, necessarily, but knowing that you can't, it, it, it does, it, it is, it did affect me. Um, mm-hmm. And I just remember, you know, yeah, going through my college years um, and any significant relationship I had as um, a young adult, I always felt the need to, to tell the, the person if it was starting to get serious that they had to know. And um, as an adult, as all my girlfriends around me were, you know, getting pregnant and having kids and, you know, enjoying that and having those conversations with each other, what they were going through, I always felt, um, you know, not part of those conversations. And that was a difficult time. We'll be back with patient stories in just a minute. If you would like to speak with a genetic counselor but don't know where to start, Great Genetics is here to help. We know that finding a genetic counselor can be challenging. Here at Gray Genetics, we offer genetic counseling in a variety of specialty areas. Whether you're interested in cancer, family planning, or cardiovascular genetics, you can connect with a certified genetic counselor who will evaluate your family history and even coordinate testing if necessary, all over the phone or secure video conferencing. Check out this service and more on graygenetics.com. That's G-R-E-Y genetics.com. How did that conversation um, about not being able to have kids the way a lot of people have kids, how did that conversation go with um, who you actually ended up marrying? So I actually remember having the conversation with him um, once we were getting really serious. And, um, you know, he was also, again, just very accepting. And, um, you know, um, we once we were married um, and we were wanting to start a family, we looked into adoption. I always knew that was something that I was interested in. Um, I had 15 years to think about it. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I needed him to be on board with that and be okay right. with that. So we did explore other options. We went to some doctors and looked into what if we, you know, got an egg donor and then a surrogate and, you know, he would still, you know, have a child with his genetics. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I I went along with that because I wanted him to come to his own realization and decisions about how he wanted to have kids. I didn't want to just say to him, the only option here is adopting. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, after we explored all those, those options, we did come to the decision together that adoption was um, the best way for us to start a family. Yeah. Um, and you ended up getting twins, which is kind of like, kind of like a good, like, I feel like that's, I mean, twins has, has to, that has to be overwhelming in a lot of ways, but I, I just hear like, it's, you know, such an exhausting and long process sometimes like the adoption process to to hear that you have, they're giving you two babies instead of one. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It was amazing. Um, the whole process took us about a year and a half, which actually isn't so bad in the adoption world. Um, but the, what you have to go through the paperwork, 
um, the traveling, it's, it's, it's a lot. It's really difficult. Um, so yeah, when we found out twins and it's one boy and one girl, even better, we were really, really excited. Yeah. Um, how do you feel like, uh, the diagnosis of AIS impacts your life at this point? At this point, I don't think it affects me much at all. Mm -hmm. Um, since I've gotten to the place of accepting myself, um, and feeling comfortable with myself and my body. Um, I, I will say that I started to think about, you know, my body, like hormonally making, I wanted to make sure like everything is, um, you know, that, that I'm doing everything I can for my body to make sure I'm healthy. Right. So I, I started going to, um, to a DO who specializes in hormones. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we did all kinds of blood testing. And this is a doctor I just started with recently. Um, We did a lot of blood testing. And, you know, my hormone levels looked really good for for the condition I have. You know, she has me taking some um, natural progesterone at night. um, But, um, you know, she's just kind of regulating my levels. But everything looks really good. Yeah, that's really nice to hear. Yeah. I think you've gotten pretty involved with the intersex community. Is that right? Yeah. Immediately, once I found out my diagnosis, I went online and I started researching and I found um, a support group, the AIS DSD support group, um, and uh, immediately went on there and reached out and, um, and I got involved and I went to a couple conferences. They do an annual conference every year. Um, in different parts of the country. And I went to a couple and I got to meet other people who were able, you know, to share that the same experiences. And it just, that was a very valuable experience. And it looks like their website is AISDSD.org. Does Correct. that sound right? Yep. Okay. Okay, great. And we'll include that in the show notes for people also. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how has it been, um, to be connected with people who have either the same diagnosis or just other, um, disorders of sexual development? It feels amazing to know, like, you're not the only one. I grew up my whole life thinking I'm the only one. There's no one else like me. And, um, it, it feels amazing to know that there are others. I remember my first time meeting someone else, um, with this condition, um, there was a small little gathering in Manhattan and um, I was invited to go. And, you know, shortly after I, you know, I reached out to the support group and I was just like, do I go? I, like, I didn't know. I didn't know what to expect. And I remember going and um, the first person I met was my friend Kimberly. And she just welcomed me with open arms and we just laughed because she said, so I I don't look like an alien, huh? (laughs) And I'm like, no, not at all. Um, You know, so she recognized the fact, you know, that I was nervous. Like, I don't know what I'm walking into here. Right. Um, And uh, yeah, yeah, that was my first time meeting someone. Is there, besides AIS, DSD, are there other support organizations that you found that you would recommend to people in a similar situation? I haven't. I haven't found anything, but um, there is there is a website um, called Interact. 
um, interact advocates for intersex youth that kind of branched off from that support group. Um, it's interactadvocates.org. Okay. And, um, you know, this is where you could see a lot of the advocacy work that's being done. Um, yeah. Okay. But for you, it's really been AIS, DSD. It's really been like the most helpful where you found connection and the annual conferences. Yes. Okay. I think at this point, like 9 million people maybe have taken a 23andMe test. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's, you know, there's other companies doing ancestry testing. I'm not, I'm not sure like ancestry.com. I'm not sure, um, you know, if they do a check like 23andMe does where they're also doing a karyotype. Um, but at this point, just based on how many people have taken a 23andMe test, there must be at least several hundred people in the U.S. who've received results like you have. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what, um, do you encounter very many people through support groups who learn their results in a similar way? Or do you have a sense of, of what's happening when people get results that way? Mm. I actually haven't. Um, the people that I've met, and I, have, I haven't been to a conference in a couple of years, but um, the people that I met initially, there are plenty of people that found out by accident. You know, maybe they stumbled across their medical records in their parents' basement or, um, you know, some other way. But I don't personally, you know, I haven't met anyone personally that, that has a story like this that they, that they found it on 23andMe. Yeah. Yeah. I always wonder, um, you know, how many I've talked to just like one person who had like surprising results that way on 23andMe, but I always wonder like how many people are out there that have never noticed because they never really looked at their 23andMe results carefully or, Mm -hmm. or who noticed, but are just feel uncomfortable with it and aren't sure like how to follow up or like what the next steps would be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What would you say if there's someone listening who has received those kind of results through 23andMe but just didn't really know what to do with it? Well, I would I would go to your physician, you know, um, your general physician to talk about it. Um, I went to a geneticist. I wanted to, you know, get a confirmation that that was actually what the diagnosis was. So I did go to a geneticist um, here on Long Island and um, did some blood work and did get you know, confirmation of the diagnosis. Um, so that's what I did. So I, I would probably recommend the same. Yeah. And I mean, in New York on Long Island, you know, I think there's several geneticists. Some people live in areas where there aren't as many geneticists, but mm-hmm. in those cases, you know, you can still follow up with your physician or even a genetic counselor. Correct. What do you wish that people or doctors knew about AIS? Um. Like, do you run into a lot of misconceptions or do you feel like if people have heard of the condition that they have a good grasp of what it means? Well, most people haven't heard of the condition. They haven't heard the term intersex. I think um, a lot of, um, you know, people are more familiar these days with hearing terms like transgender, right? But intersex Mm -hmm. isn't something people are very, um, they don't have a lot of knowledge of. So, so that raises a lot of questions. So I do, I do, I would like there to be more um, awareness, really, um, of what it is. And I also, um, because there are so many people living with some condition like this, they say that um, about 2% of the population, um, which equals to like, uh, if you know someone with red hair, 
like natural, a natural redhead, you probably know someone intersex. Yeah. So that's how common it is. Um, and that, um, instead of looking at it as a disorder, we're advocating to look at it more like, like a difference of sexual development, not necessarily a disorder of sexual development. And that, um, that sex is not necessarily binary. You know, you're not either male or female. There's a lot of in between. Right. Um, It's a gross, gross oversimplification, even in genetics to say 46 XX is a female and 46 XY is a male. Correct. Correct. So, um, so I just wanted to become more normalized, really, you know, more aware and yeah. Yeah. It's, I think it's, it's handy that, um, like disorder and difference happen to start with the same letter (laughs) because Mm -hmm. I feel like there's so many different terms in genetics and maybe medicine more broadly where in the past the term that was used was disorder and there's just growing awareness that like why are we labeling something a disorder instead of a difference. Exactly. Exactly. So intersex is really an umbrella term for Mm -hmm. AIS and other DSDs. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you find is that kind of like the best or the preferred term? Or do you find that that's like the most helpful term to use when you talk with people? Or is that term confusing to people? Um, I have found that term to be confusing to people. And they they usually will ask, what what is that? I've never heard of, heard of that. Um, you know, I identify as a woman, um, you know, and I don't necessarily, like my identity isn't necessarily I don't really identify intersex per se um so someone asked me what's your gender I would say a woman because that's what I identify with but everyone's different so I know others in the community who who prefer to use intersex um to describe to describe that but yeah um and for those individuals in the community, um, have you found that like their preference would be on a form that it's like like male, female, and then a box that says other or male, female, intersex or male, female, intersex, other, or like a write-in? Mm. Or have you heard like discussions about around like what the better way to present those options? Yeah, be? I mean, definitely having more options than just male or female. Most forms that, you know, you're filling out, whether it's at DMV or in a doctor's office even, you know, give you two options, male or female. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I think just having more options is... Like any any option, I guess it's like early enough in the idea of even changing that, that yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm thinking of like, what would be the ideal form or, <laughs> yeah. um, but like any third option would already be welcome, I guess. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so if you, if someone's listening and they had experiences growing up similar to yours and maybe, maybe they haven't been able to have children or they were told they don't have a uterus or they have other issues going on where now they're wondering if they have AIS or if they might have another difference of sexual development or fall under that intersex umbrella, what would be your advice to them? What would you want them to know? I want them to know that you're not alone. You're not the only one, that there's others um, and that um, there's no shame. You know, I, I, I grew up with a tremendous amount of shame, um, but nobody should be shameful. Nobody is shameful. And, um, you know, and it's okay. And that there are others out there. 
Um, are your parents still living? I wonder if you've talked, if you had an mm. opportunity to talk with them about this. Well, my, my dad, unfortunately, is passed. But um, my mom, my mom is alive. And when, you know, when I was 38, when I found this information, I, I did approach her with it. And, um, you know, she was very upset. She, you know, from her time, you know, back in the 70s and 80s when I was growing up, um, you know, there were things that you just didn't tell people and she was guided not, you know, not to tell. Um, So her feeling was, you know, I just didn't want to hurt you. Mm -hmm. Um, That's why I didn't tell you. Right. She felt like um, she was protecting you. Yes. Yeah. Which I I understand. Yeah. Um, is there anything else I should be asking you? Um, well, I, you know, I will say because, you know, I know that there have been a lot of like parents that are reaching out to the support group um, where maybe their children are just being diagnosed um, and they're still young. There's, you know, still minors um, and they ask a lot of questions and how to, you know, how to how to best talk to their child about it. Um, and my suggestion is just to, you know, take it slowly. I think at every age, like I'm doing with my kids, explaining to them, um, you know, about, about my condition, giving them the information that they could handle at whatever developmental age that they're at and what their understanding is. Um, cause that's what I, I wish for myself that I would have known sooner um, you know, so that, that would be what I would recommend. Yeah. How do you think things might've been different for you if your parents had shared that diagnosis with you at 15? I think I could have gone through the healing process, um, sooner possibly. You know, I understand, you know, at 15, they probably didn't think I could handle the information, but I certainly think I could have handled it before 38. Yeah. So. And you were really, I mean, in some ways, like, I mean, you were having to handle it anyway because you were living with it, even if it wasn't being explained to you why. Exactly. Yeah. Well, wonderful. I'm really excited to share your story. Thank you. But thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Patient Stories is an ad-free podcast and is unaffiliated with any commercial genetic testing laboratories. We would like to keep it that way. You can now donate to Patient Stories online by going to graygenetics.com slash podcast slash donate. If you don't want to make a monetary donation but still want to support the show in another way, leaving a review on iTunes or sharing our episodes through social media also makes a big difference. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute medical advice and is also not a substitute for genetic counseling. Neither Gray Genetics nor any of its guests makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Evaluation of an individual's personal and family health history is a crucial part of genetic counseling and any recommendations.